Welcome to Reading in the Attic, a podcast featuring old and new fiction with a retro feel. My name is Camille LaGuire, and I'm literally reading these stories to you from my attic. So pull up a dusty chair and settle in. Today's episode features the first chapter of my mystery, The Man Who Did Too Much. It's an old-fashioned combination of cozy mystery puzzle and adventure suspense. And, in reading it, I find I am hoist by my own petard. See, when I wrote this book, I never even thought about the trouble a narrator might have reading it aloud. There was just this guy in my head, with a mysterious and varied background. And he had this odd accent. I could hear it quite clearly in my head, and I knew where it came from. But for the characters, it's supposed to be a mystery. And it was kind of fun in a book, because the other characters can only give you hints. It's vaguely British, thinks a character in the opening scene. Or a couple of chapters later, the other protagonist describes it as sort of Englishy, maybe Australianish. The police wonder if he's a South African spy. The great thing about fiction is that the reader can imagine what they want. However, it never occurred to me that I would ever have to replicate that accent myself. And that's just the accent I hear in my own head. It's not even the accent you hear when you read it. And I'll admit to you, frankly, I can't even do the one I hear. If I try too hard, it sounds unnatural, which is not how he sounds. Furthermore, my own accent, combined with his accent, makes some words unclear. So we'll just have to make do with vaguely British. And I'll blame it on the fact that he isn't actually any form of English, Australian, or South African. So it's not my fault he sounds funny. On with the excerpt. This is the first chapter of the book in which we meet George, the man who did too much, and Gwen, the woman for which he does too much. And we are also indirectly introduced to Carla, the woman who may be able to save them from themselves, if George can save a friend of hers from dire peril. The Man Who Did Too Much, Chapter 1, St. George Dr. Cannon was running late. She dashed in through the front door as a shortcut, but saw the waiting room was empty. Is Gwen here yet? she asked the receptionist. Not yet. Gwen Littleton often appeared reluctant to come to therapy, but she was always exactly on time for her appointments. Dr. Cannon frowned and went into her private office. She almost didn't see the man in the perfectly pressed trench coat sitting quietly in the chair in the corner. She glanced back at the receptionist, who showed no sign that she knew he was there. But there he was, sitting where he would see her before she saw him. Neat, quiet, exuding control like a goddamn spy. Exactly what you'd expect from Gwen's description, except Dr. Cannon had always pictured him carrying a lance. You're George, she said. George Stalling, yes. Slight accent, vaguely British to go with a trench coat and cool lurking presence. Gwen sent you, didn't she? Yes. Damn it. She shut the door and threw her papers on the desk, then calmed herself and went to sit behind it. He sat forward, resting his elbows on his knees, and watched her. I can't talk to you about her, 
she told him. I'm aware of that. Then why are you here? Gwen was under the impression that I would talk to you instead. You can't take her therapy for her. It was that or cancel. They sat and stared at one another for a long moment before Dr. Cannon finally sighed. All right, fine. I suppose you could fill in a little background. She shuffled the papers around on her desk to find a notebook. Let's start with you. I'm not clear on what you are to her. He furrowed his brow. Do you mean am I the controlling bastard of a boyfriend, the obsessive-compulsive codependent, or am I the bodyguard who forgot to go home when the job was over? Or something else? That would be nice, wouldn't it? But I'll be the first to admit that I can be a controlling, compulsive, codependent bastard who doesn't know when to quit. What about boyfriend? That's under review. Dr. Cannon made a non-committal sound and a note. Not sure of his feelings or of hers. Does she say otherwise? He asked. She looked up to see that the super cool had melted for a moment. He looked at her with hope, uncertainty. She paused to underline hers. I can't talk about that. No, of course not. He glanced away, brow furrowed again. He tapped his fingers as he seemed to consider whether to put his guard back up or not. Then the guard came down altogether and he sat forward. We'd had a flirtation. It was inappropriate. She was engaged, and it ended when... He cut himself short. It ended. Then later she was kidnapped. He looked at Dr. Cannon, an indirect look, as if judging how much she knew about Gwen's ordeal. She couldn't indicate anything, so she just watched him. She didn't have anyone in country, I mean over there where it happened, and what family she has is not wealthy. It was months before anyone contacted me. By then, we didn't even know who had her. They shuffle them around, you know, the hostages, trade them, sell them, and sometimes... Well, we did track her down and got her out. We? I. I got her out. He paused. She was in an awful pit in the back of a cave. There was a corpse in the pit with her, and she'd been abandoned there. I pulled her out and she clung to me. She was dehydrated and she could hardly talk. So she whispered, don't leave. That's all she could say. Didn't even want me to step away to get her some water. So I carried her. Anyway, she said don't leave, so I won't. He said that last in a defiant tone. I wasn't going to ask you to, George. She's under the impression that you don't approve of me. I don't even know you, George. And yet she has that impression, Ellen. He tilted his head, slightly mocking her tone and expression. She does or you do? She does. After all, I don't even know you either. He sat back, a cool Mr. Bond again, but then he leaned forward again and looked at her frankly. You knew that I came here because she sent me. You know she's excessively dependent on me. It's only reasonable for you to think she's using me as a crutch. What's the word? Enabling. Well, you can't make her life for her. I can't breathe for her either, but if she asks, I'll give it a go, he said. And she suffocates while you get all the oxygen. He sat back as if slapped. She thought he was going to protest, but instead he shook his head and pressed his fingers to his eyes. Oh God, that was an awful metaphor, wasn't it? 
I swear it's not as revealing as it sounds, he said. Listen, for months and months she had absolutely no control of anything, and that was demonstrated to her on an hourly basis. Now she has control of me, and of anything I can control. So what I meant to say was that I will enable the hell out of her until she is strong enough to do it for herself. Have you thought that you could be enabling her to stay weak? She is weak, and I'm not going to bully her into anything she doesn't want. Tell me, George, do you think she's getting better? Yes, Ellen, I do think she's getting better. He wasn't going to say more, but she waited, and he conceded. She was, but she stopped. And that's why you're here. Absolutely, that's why I'm here. I don't know what's wrong. I can't say she's got worse. The anxiety attacks are almost gone, really. But she hasn't left the house in two weeks. It's like she's stuck. Dr. Cannon sat back and put her hands together in a little steeple, which she rested against her nose while she waited for him to think about what he had just said. He simply looked at her expectantly. I can't tell you anything of what she's told me, she said. But what I'm hearing from you is that you feel your role is to make her feel safe. Yes. But is there any actual danger? No, and she knows it, but she's still anxious. So you're the knight, she's the damsel, and there is no dragon. What else is there to your relationship? We don't have a relationship, yet. That's right. You say she's stuck. Well, so are you. You need to get out of this crisis mode and start doing something normal. He sat and looked at her for a very long time, and then suddenly he tensed up. Like what? he said in a burst of angry frustration. He stood up. Like what? I don't know what normal is. I've never lived a normal life. And she just won't. She wants cheeseburgers, so I feed her cheeseburgers until I'm sick to death of them. Is that what you mean? What do you want normal to be? Whatever she wants it to be. And that is? I don't know. Then you need to find out, George. This time he didn't mock or push back. His eyes were distant as he absorbed it. Then he nodded, as if accepting an assignment. Dr. Cannon felt a slight twinge of regret, as if she had been conspiring against Gwen's desire to avoid getting better. But then, if Gwen really didn't want to get better, she should never have sent her knight to her therapy session. George stepped out into the cool, hazy air of a Michigan summer. It was a sunny day, at least as sunny as he'd seen yet. The locals seemed to think it was warm and brilliant. Was that normal? It seemed to be for Michigan. Normal. That was the package, and he had to retrieve it. That's what he did as a recovery agent for Benson Kravich International. He recovered things that people couldn't get back for themselves. Gwen had lost the comfort and safety of normal, but she couldn't give him a clue as to what it was for her, so he'd have to find it for himself. But at the moment, he was still at an utter loss as to how. He pressed his hand to his head and sighed and headed off in search of the requested mini-cheeseburger, no pickles. When he got to his car, he paused to check his cell phone, saw that he had received 15 calls in the past hour. He tensed but none of them were from Gwen. 
Indeed, they were all from Ava Kravich, his former boss. Fifteen of them. He frowned, dialed, and said, I don't work for you. You're in Michigan, Ava replied in her clipped but otherwise not discernible Flemish accent. And I'm staying in Michigan. Good. That's where the trouble is. George paused. Hang up, he thought. But he didn't. What do you want? One of Raoul Timoreau's sons was kidnapped, and it appears he has been spotted not far from where you are. Timoreau would be Zero's territory. He's on his way, but it will be several days, and the lead is tenuous. All I want is for you to track it down and keep a finger on the thread until he gets here. It isn't really my sort of job. It's exactly your sort of job. No, Ava, I'm a retriever, not a pointer. And I'm retired. I have responsibilities. Ava paused. How is she? She's well enough, and I'd rather not be deported for working without a green card, thank you. Are you planning to become a resident? I'm not going to discuss that with you. Which means you are not. George sighed. No, it just means that it's still an open question. We haven't achieved normalcy yet. It has been months. Perhaps this is normal. Please don't say that. But you are thinking it. Yes, yes, I am thinking it. I am thinking that things may very well never change. But I haven't made up my mind about whether that's all right or not. You are a man who makes things change, George. Not without her permission. Ava made a rude sound. She was a lot more direct than the shrink, but on the other hand, she was nearly 80 and only played games for fun. Perhaps you could use a day off from your routine, said Ava. A day for the retriever to run. The retriever doesn't know how to stop. Hire a local detective agency. Did you know that Gwen has a fax machine? Yes, said George with trepidation. He pictured the clunky old phone in the hall. It had a message machine and a fax built in. As far as he knew, it didn't work, but... Yes, the dossier went through successfully. It was short. You sent it to Gwen? You had no bloody right. She doesn't need to see a dossier about some kidnap victim. He snapped the phone shut and tore out of the parking lot. But then good sense took hold. Ava might not have actually sent it at all. There might not have been paper in the fax machine, or Gwen might not have looked at it. He pulled over and picked up the phone again. Gwen answered quickly. George? She didn't sound upset, though there was a note of something in her voice. Eagerness or anxiety? His heart was doing flip-flops, but he wasn't sure if it was because he liked to hear that lively note in her voice or because it scared him. I'm on my way home, love, he said. How are you doing? I'm fine. Listen, is your fax machine on? Oh, yes, and you got a fax. All right, well, just leave it, all right? Don't read it. I'm sorry, I won't. She wouldn't apologize if she hadn't. Bloody hell. Well, good, it's nothing. I'm not going to bother with it. Oh, but don't you think... The anxiety was back in her voice, but she caught herself. I try not to, he said. She didn't reply, and he realized that whatever it was that made her anxious, he would have to deal with it.
but I will think if you want me to. She let out a long sigh of relief. Can you get me a cheeseburger? Of course, Junior, no pickles. He hung up and told himself that he didn't need to race home. It was all right. He looked across the street at a Chinese restaurant, which was shaped like a fake pagoda. The food was probably awful, but frankly, right now, he longed for anything other than a cheeseburger. Something with garlic, ginger, and coconut milk. Or even just too much soy sauce and MSG. Something other than cheeseburgers and pizza. But smell evokes memory, and memories were still a problem for Gwen. Even pickles reminded her of lime and fermented fish, which were the predominant seasoning in Tolongao. The smell of any Asian food tended to set off bad dreams and flashbacks. The restaurant did say it had cocktails. Perhaps a stiff drink would hide the scent of a spot of Teng Mian. No, he had to get home. He went and got the cheeseburger and a grilled chicken sandwich for himself, which he could cut up and have with pasta and broth. No garlic, but it would at least not have any bread or cheese. George was preoccupied when he returned to the flat with his bag of burgers. He set the food down on the counter and called to her. She didn't answer. She might be just listening to music with headphones. Still, he went looking just to be sure. He found her in her bedroom, on the bed, hugging her knees and rocking slightly. She hadn't done that in months. Gwen? he said, a little breathlessly. She looked up with a start and then leapt up. Thank God. She wasn't off in a zone by herself. She really wasn't. She rushed across the room and threw her arms around him. George, 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 she said. It's all right, he replied automatically. He wasn't quite sure what was all right, other than his own spirits, which had lifted instantly. They'd been careful about displays of affection, and the hug hit him rather hard. He wrapped his arms around her. She was still very thin. I'm sorry I went away. I'm all right, she said. It's that little boy. She turned toward the bed, and that's when he noticed it was strewn with pages from the fax machine. I told you not to read that, he said. You have to take that job, she replied. She pulled away and looked at him seriously. I don't. It's not really for me. You have to. George, that little boy has been kidnapped. He's a hostage. If he's here in the U.S., he's not likely going through what you did. You can't know that. She pulled away, angry and strong. How can you even say that? I'm sorry, he said. You said you'd do whatever I asked, and I'm asking you to do this. All right, he said. Why don't you go and eat your cheeseburger while I read the dossier, then? I couldn't eat. There's a milkshake, too. She looked at him closely. Will you do it? she asked. Absolutely. Will you eat? She took his hand and smiled at him, and then, letting her fingers brush along his, she went off into the hall. And what would happen if, or when, she had a panic attack while he was out tracking this down? It didn't matter. She wanted it. He turned his attention to the dossier. There wasn't much to it. They had a set of pictures of a child at a small local amusement park called the Pier Marquette Playground. And that's all. They didn't even have the address of the park. The pictures looked like they were cropped from the background of something else 
tourist snaps from the foreground elbows and shoulders in some of them. So it was just a bit of kismet, where someone happened to snap a picture and someone who knew something happened to see the picture? Bloody unlikely. But there he was, Prince Torio Timuro in a dirty Spider-Man t-shirt, eating ice cream and smiling like any other seven-year-old at a park with ponies and trains. Were they sure it was him? George glanced at the dossier. Yes, they were sure. There was a close-up of the child's hand. Blurry, but you could see he was missing half a little finger and had a slash across the back of the hand toward the thumb. Torio had survived an assassination attempt just over a year ago. The scar was distinctive. George looked over the pictures, flat and poorly detailed because it was from a fax, and decided that there was either much more or much less to this than one would expect. You don't have to keep a child prisoner, especially so far from home, but letting him run around in a crowded park seemed unlikely. And the woman he was with wasn't watching him. She had ice cream, too, and seemed, by the look on her face, to be having an even better time than the child. Were they even together? Yes, one of the other pictures showed her holding the car door for him. George looked closer at the other pictures of the woman. She, too, was dressed in jeans and a T-shirt. The T-shirt depicted a long-haired, bearded man who looked vaguely revolutionary. George squinted to make out the slogan, The Dude Abides. He wasn't sure what it meant, but it didn't sound particularly political. And she had chocolate on her face, and the person she was talking to appeared to be a policeman. Not exactly your criminal type. The car in the picture was an ancient station wagon. No sign that she was being paid well for keeping the prince of a foreign country. He looked at the text of the dossier, but there wasn't much there either. They had identified her from the license plate. Carla Marquette was 40, never married, no criminal record, and since she shared a name with a park and a peer, she was undoubtedly a local of long standing. Ah, yes, they had her voting record. She was a registered Democrat who had never missed a vote in the local precinct in 22 years. She supported herself with odd jobs and a website about old movies, classic movie maven. She had profiles on social networking sites, but all the information there was about old movies rather than herself, except for the pictures of her cat, which was old, fat, and apparently named Orson Welles. George looked at the pictures of the woman again. You can be fooled by people. They can be happy and relax and friendly even as they kill people. Torio's father was like that, so it didn't mean much that the child seemed relaxed around her. Still, such people give off a vibe, and some people were very sensitive to that vibe. He gathered the papers and took them back into the kitchen. Gwen was sitting on a stool at the counter, finishing her cheeseburger. It was a small burger, but she ate it all. There was an open can of nutritional supplement next to the milkshake. George moved it aside to make room for the papers surreptitiously checking the weight and finding it empty. Good. He sat down and held up the picture of the woman with the child. Is she a good guy? Yes, said Gwen, without hesitation. George held up a different picture, but Gwen shook her head. I've seen them all. I think she's a babysitter. She's having fun like it's temporary. If that's true, then the job is easy, he said. I just find out what she knows and pass it on to Zero when he gets here. But if you find the little boy, you'll rescue him. 
Absolutely. You won't wait for Zero. He glanced up and met her eyes. She was watching him, reminding him of how he'd let things go wrong in the first place when Alan had disappeared. No, said George, I won't wait. In spite of being difficult, this was fun to read. I love to hear my characters come to life, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I may do another chapter or two here later, especially if I get any encouragement. By the way, purchases of the book do count as encouragement. It's available at Amazon and iBookstore and Barnes & Noble and Scribd and Kobo. All of them. Or you could just tell me via comments on the podcast or blog. Or sign up for my newsletter. You can find links to all of these at my website, camillelaguire.com. That's C-A-M-I-L-L-E-L-A-G-U-I-R-E dot com. But for now, I'm going to move on to some other stories. Two weeks from now, you can expect another Mick and Casey short story, The Trail of the Lonesome Stickpin. That, I expect, will be another tricky one, as it shifts back and forth in time while Mick tries to remember how he came to be unconscious and half-naked with the vague memory of his hand in the hair of a beautiful woman, a woman who is not Casey, his gunslinger wife. That should be fun. But that's it for this week. The story was from The Man Who Did Too Much by Camille LaGuire. Sound production by Camille LaGuire. Music by the Royalty Free Music Company. Until next time, see you in the funny papers. <laughs> <laughs>